About one billion people around the world live in shanty towns or slums, eking out an existence in crowded, unhealthy and often unsafe conditions. But why would anyone choose to live like that? Finding an answer to that question led Californian aid worker Scott Sabine on a journey upstream, figuratively and literally. And it led him to some surprising solutions that can be summed up in three simple words. Healing the land. This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Hey, welcome back for another week of Signs of the Times Radio. It's great to have you with us. And on the phone from the USA, San Diego, I believe, we have the CEO of an organization called Plant With Purpose. His name is Scott Sabine. How are you, Scott? Doing well, thanks, Kent. Excellent. Hey, thanks so much for uh, being part of Signs of the Times Radio this week. Oh, my pleasure. You wrote an article online on the Q Ideas website, and also you, you, they interviewed you. I, I read that article, I saw that video, and I thought, this is fantastic. So <laughs> I did sort of gra- grab those things and put it together for, for an article. So in, in a sense, you did write the article. They're your words. They've just been massaged slightly, but no, th- thanks for that. But you talk about how you got involved in land rehabilitation work. Perhaps we could call you the, the accidental environmentalist. <laughs> how that how did that happen? Uh, yeah, it's funny. I've actually used that phrase myself. In many ways, it was a it was an accident of geography. I was uh, finishing graduate school here in San Diego mm-hmm. and spent a summer in Guatemala learning Spanish in order to graduate. And God used that time to open my eyes to issues of extreme poverty mm-hmm. and injustice. And people living their faith out in a way that I'd never experienced growing up here. Yeah. I still had another semester of school to, to go, so I came back to San Diego. But I was looking for a place to volunteer where people were exercising that same kind of faith, where people were really serving the poor. That led me to start volunteering at, at Plant With Purpose. Mm-hmm. When I started, it was a little bit... I loved the, the poverty alleviation work. I loved the mm. serving the poor. I didn't quite understand the environmental piece. Right, Um, right. So you you mentioned in your article it was in Haiti where it sort of started to to click. I mean, I I know people who've lived in Haiti for a while and done work there, and they've said, this place is amazing. It's it's just denuded of trees and vegetation. It's just bare rock in, in so many places. That must have been a bit of a shock to you too, I guess. Yes, and talking to the to the people, realizing that you know ninety percent of the people make their living as farmers, yeah. so they depend on that land, that eroded, degraded hillside. They that's what they depend on. Oftentimes, for a farmer, you know they have no irrigation, so they're dependent on whatever rain falls, what happens to that rain when it falls, and whatever soil it falls on, and that's really their only assets. Mm-hmm. So you said you were involved in helping people who were. In- in extreme poverty, and I understand a lot of these were ending up in in shanty towns, either in town in in Haiti or even going over the border into the Dominican Republic. Yeah, and uh, and that's where we started. But as we started to talk to those people, this, we kept hearing similar stories. Mm. You know, they'd come from farming families, or they'd been farmers. 
you know, and they'd shake their heads and say, but there's no, there's no future in farming. There's no, no opportunities in farming. Mm. And so we realized if they're coming to these, you know, what looked just desperate slums to us, if they're coming to these places because where they're leaving is worse, mm. where we need to be is upstream. And, you know, we actually think in, in those terms today, you know, upstream and downstream watersheds, but it, it started almost kind of figuratively, you know, where is the problem originating from? And uh, we ended up in the mountains talking to the, you know, to people trying to make their living in the, on the land mm. and then realizing that it wasn't a unique problem. It wasn't a Haitian problem or a Dominican problem. It really is a global problem throughout sub-Saharan Africa. You know, any place where you're seeing this massive urbanization, people are leaving the countryside. And a lot of times it's because there's no opportunities there yeah wow so when when you did go upstream as you said and you saw these people on their farmland what what was it about that situation there that was you know that was untenable that wasn't working that pushed people off the land into into slums as you said well some of its perception Mm -hmm. you know most of the other opportunities any job besides farming, any educational opportunity, any foreign aid is all coming to the city. And so that draws people like a magnet. Right. And, and some of it's the fact that once the topsoils eroded away, once the trees are cut, the rain no longer infiltrates the soil, no longer recharges the aquifers. And areas that were once damp, moist, and fertile have become essentially deserts. Then there becomes a point at which farming it no longer works and so it's a choice of going to the city or or going hungry Mm, wow okay i find this really fascinating because you know in in your article you you do quote scripture a few times and i get the feeling that you're a a christian you know with a fairly you know close knowledge of of the bible even i even what would you describe yourself as an evangelical Yes, I do. Yeah. Well, I mean, evangelicals, in particularly, you know, white evangelicals in, in the U.S. Are, are not particularly renowned for their environmental <laughs> consciousness. I'm not sure if you're aware of that international reputation. But, um, so ha- I heard. <laughs> so ha- how did the witness of your own eyes in these situations, you know, challenge your, your spiritual views, your, your theological views? And, and how did you make sense of that in the end? Well, I, I have to say, you know, like I say, it was sort of a an accident, almost a re- reluctant thing that I got involved in this. Mm. And yet it didn't take very long working in Haiti and the Dominican Republic before I realized, you know, the people need the trees. And that put me in close contact with a lot of other people working in the same space. Mm. And... Over time, and I've been doing this for 26 years now, over time I I began to realize, yes, that's true, the people need the trees, but that's a a pretty utilitarian perspective. Mm. And God loves creation for its own sake. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can see that throughout the Bible, you know, going from from Genesis and the creation where God says, and it was good. Mm -hmm. And, And then first puts Adam in the garden to tend it and to keep it. Mm. And so that's the very first job ever given to human beings is to take care of this garden and realizing that that's a theme that that tracks all the way through. I think one of the exciting things about it 
as, as I've learned more, is that God invites us to be involved in his work and his redemptive work in the world. Hmm. And the New Testament says that, you know, God is redeeming all things through Christ. Mm-hmm. Things and and, and, and I guess when, when Christians look at those Bible verses, usually they, I guess they very much spiritualize it and say, well, we're talking about the, the redemption of human souls here. We're talking about people, you know, a- accepting Jesus as the Lord of their life and, you know, you know, basically accepting eternal life in heaven, but you you interpret that more broadly in terms of what the physical world, the the created world. I do, I do, and I think that a lot of times what we do physically carries spiritual implications or spiritual lessons. I mean, it's hard to talk about, you know, as we're as we're proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God to do that while at the same time in our lives we're being destructive of what God's already created. Mm. You know, I don't know exactly what reconciling creation looks like, but I know that as we proclaim the good news of the kingdom, our actions can be life-giving or they can be death-dealing and destructive. And mm. and I think that, you, you know, you, you mentioned the reputation of American white evangelicals earlier. You know, that's not a particularly effective witness to God's, redeeming work when mm. we have this reputation of not taking care of what God's created. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a challenge. How, how do your, uh, your fellow evangelicals, you know, take to your, to your messages or take to you, uh, you know, recounting your, your experience, uh, your experiences and the, you know, what you've learned from them? Well, I think there's a, a little bit of an on-ramp, you know, some people never get past the fact that, and there's a story I sometimes tell. When I first when I first started working 26 years ago, hmm. my father kind of looked at me, rolled his eyes, and said, "Are you kidding? Planting trees for Jesus? You know that's about <laughs> the most marginal thing you can think of to do with your life." Yeah. And a lot of people never get past that, hmm. but some people do, and they get really excited about the fact that, hey, this makes sense. It's hmm. helping people. You know, I mean, it's very easy to point to. Farmers that we work with, and we work currently with about 200,000 people. Wow. It's really, really easy to point to changes in their lives. They're eating more. They're getting better nutrition. Their land is thriving. Mm. And so it's really easy to make the utilitarian argument. You know, the people need the trees. And that's... You know, that's where we start. Yeah, fair enough. Absolutely. So when you are talking about restoring the land or, or rehabilitating the land, I mean, you mentioned, you know, planting trees for Jesus, but I, I imagine it's a, it's a little bit more complex than just planting trees. What, what else is involved in actually, you know, turning something from a, you know, an, an eroded sort of dry area to something that is, you know, fertile and it is growing the sorts of things that are going to, you know, keep families and communities alive? Well, we start, we do a lot uh, with soil conservation, with rainwater harvesting, with, you know, oftentimes starting with things like biointensive vegetable gardens, but things that will give a fairly quick return to the farmers. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, one of the problems that tree planting programs have had is... (laughs) <laughs> they take many years to bear fruit, no yeah. pun intended. Yeah, yeah. Right? But you're you're not going to get the benefits of a tree for four, five, 25 years. Mm-hmm. And so, that again, there needs to be a bit of an on-ramp. So starting mm-hmm. with things that are 
good for the environment that restore fertility of the soil. Composting is another one, but they have a much quicker benefit. And as people start to move beyond extreme poverty, they're much more willing to invest in the future. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I mean, you, you mentioned you know planting trees, and it, it's become a bit of a cliche, hasn't it? Really, you know, do do good as planting trees in order to. I, and people usually talk about it in terms of you know pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and, and that sort of thing. Right. But, but I get the sense that there are actually immediate well not immediate as you say 20 25 years but there are actual local benefits from having trees i mean you, you can't eat trees usually so how do they actually you know benefit the the soil and the land um well one of the things they do is they allow the rain to infiltrate the soil if the if the land is barren you know and especially on steep sloping land what rain does fall runs off very quickly. T- taking soil with it, I imagine. Taking soil with it, exactly. There's a pretty dramatic reduction in soil erosion when there's tree cover, when the leaves break the raindrops, when leaf litter and biomass allows the rain to soak in. One of the ways that, that I've learned to think of it is the trees are almost like a sponge hmm. that keeps the land moist. But there are trees that fix nitrogen, and so they they basically restore fertility to the soil. And then there's all sorts of benefits to the farmer, depending on the type of tree. We plant fruit trees. We plant trees that can actually be used for timber, and that's often counterintuitive. You know, people say, well, how do you, for example, in Haiti, how do you keep people from cutting down the trees they plant? By giving them the right to cut down the trees they plant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. If they have the opportunity to benefit from them, they'll take care of them. Whereas if they see it as some outside kind of invasive program, people are much more likely to not give them a chance to grow. Yeah, well, and, and I guess the more trees and other plants you have on a particular patch of land, the more those roots are sort of holding, holding that soil in, in place. I mean, is, is that the sort of basic physical principle at work? Yeah, yeah, well, it's certainly one of them. There's, yeah. there's a lot of different physical principles, and it's both the um, ending of soil or re- reduction in soil erosion, mm. but it's also the increase in water resources, and that has been one that in many ways is counterintuitive to me. How can planting trees bring more water? But uh, well, that's right, yeah, we've be, seen because trees drink water and plants drink water, so, yeah, how could they be, how could rivers or streams return with more plants rather than less? But, but that happens, yeah, doesn't it? It does, it does. And trees recycle more rain into the atmosphere, and, yeah, so we've seen rivers and streams return to land that was dry and barren. We've seen rivers that are dry most of the year and maybe flood for a couple days out of the year. Hmm. We've seen that stream flow moderated so that they flow gently year-round. Right, Um, okay. So you you mentioned how many hundred thousand people are you helping around the world? We're currently working with about 200,000 people. Man, that's amazing. So 200,000 people. In in which sorts of of countries uh, are you you working? I'm just sort of trying to get a a grasp of the the scale of of what Plant With Purpose is, is doing right now. Yeah, we uh, started in the Dominican Republic and then Haiti and a couple of southern states in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And then we began working in East Africa in 2000, about 2004 in Tanzania and then Burundi and Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo and Ethiopia. And then we have one program along the border with uh, Burma in Thailand. Wow, okay. 
Man, that's that's incredible. So, I mean, obviously there must be sort of, you know, co- the common principles that you've been talking about that would apply in, in all these situations. But I imagine, you know, due to different climates, different cultures, different soil types, different sort of food and plant types there, you you have to have a sort of a local approach uh, as well as, you know, applying the, the broad principles. Uh, absolutely. I mean, kind of at a, a global level, we have three main areas of emphasis, environmental restoration, economic empowerment, and spiritual renewal. Mm. And those three things are, are very synergistic. They're not necessarily separate. But in terms of what people actually plant and how they restore their land, that very much depends on the local environment. And we draw a lot on local farming knowledge. You know, people who've been farming the land all their lives actually know a lot. It's not like a a bunch of Westerners coming in with our industrial agriculture technology. It's drawing on skills that are already there mm. and building on skills that are already there. Yeah, no, that, yeah. I was I was going to ask about that. You know, the balance between you know sort of the insights and the the methods of the you know the green revolution versus those those local techniques. I, I imagine there must be scientific insights that you're able to bring to the um, to that local context, though. Uh, yeah, and and w- working with agronomists who are from each of the countries and part of our staff, together we've put together a curriculum that we use everywhere with basic principles. Mm, wow. Okay. So you you mentioned one of one of your three main principles. I think was spiritual re- renewal. You just said. So, I mean, h- how does that work? You know, what what does it mean for for an individual or a family or or a community's self esteem and spiritual state to to be working with their land like this? to be able to stay on the land and, and to st- see it restored. I mean, as you say, you know, there are, there are practical, you know, utilitarian benefits, but in terms of like psychologically and spiritually, what, how does that work? You know, we use, I'll talk about the economic empowerment first because mm. it feeds directly into that. Sure. We use a system called savings groups or village savings and loan associations in which uh, groups of 25 to 30 people will start to pool their savings. We help them to organize the groups and teach them how to manage the savings. And then they make loans out of those savings Mm -hmm. and invest those in farms, in schooling, in other businesses. And we found those groups to be incredibly empowering. And we used to make loans. We used to do microfinance loans. Yes. And people would be thankful for that, but there'd be a little bit of a catch, you know? What we hear now is, isn't thanks. What we hear instead is, look what we did. We didn't know we could do this. Yeah. One woman in Dominican Republic told me, the only thing we feel bad about is we've had these resources all along and we never realized it. Mm, wow. So it's, it's the old, um, you know, give a man a fish versus teach a man two fish, isn't it? <laughs> right. Well, and, and once they realize, hey, we can do this. It's a perfect opportunity then to talk about identity in Christ, that that we're created in God's image and given talents to use and, and again, invited to participate in God's redemptive work in the world. And Mm -hmm. so what's been exciting is seeing people discover purpose for a lot of subsistence farmers you know, there's some of the the poorest people in the world of the 815 million chronically hungry people in the world. About 80% of them are people who are trying to grow their own food. Wow. And in a lot of countries, 
they are considered to be the ones who weren't smart enough to leave the farm, who weren't, who aren't contributing anything, who are backwards. And so they've been told in a lot of cases, they don't have anything to offer for years and to discover that they have purpose and talents and, and they're leading the way is, it's been fascinating. I was in Eastern Congo a couple years ago and I was talking to a guy who had been a, a local guerrilla leader. And oh, wow. uh, I didn't realize it, you know, he'd, we'd spent a couple of days together and I didn't realize his background. And when I did, I started to ask him more questions. And he, he told me, you know, the men in this community, we didn't do much. We'd sit around and play cards. And then your pastor came. And I thought, maybe if I help my wife on the farm, together we could do something really great. And then he goes on to talk about disarming the the militia, turning in their weapons. And he said, because fighting wasn't getting us anywhere. And so now I'm telling everybody that we should have peace. And well, I asked him, I said, so did you become a Christian? And he gives me this funny look and he says, no, I've always been a Christian. <laughs> I just I just never knew it applied to anything besides Sunday before. Yeah, wow. Goodness, that and that is a transformation, isn't it? That's that's incredible. So, you know, all these principles that you've put in place or all these lessons that you've learned, you know, through through this work, do you do you get a sense that, you know, do you wish sometimes that other NGOs or even, you know, the governments of developing countries w- would would pick up on, on some of what you've been developing? Like if you could inject your insights into into those sort of wider, you know, broader context, what, what would you choose? Well, it would be fantastic. I mean, I, th- I you know, a lot of it is, there's a lot of NGOs doing really good work. Oh, yeah. Some Times, you know, funding tends to be on real short cycles and, and that can be a challenge. And I think that's the same challenge that governments will face. Yeah. But yeah, I think that I would love to, love to see more people and and involved in, and, and to see restoration of the land as a key part Mm. as well. Yeah. I know a lot of people who are, you know, working with the same savings groups, but they haven't. They're not necessarily involving land restoration as a part of that. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess it strikes me that uh, a lot of developing countries are on this track of, you know, as you've said, you know, let's modernize. We need to move to a modern economy. It's all about health and and education and roads and all this sort of stuff. And and a lot of that does involve people then moving to population centres away from the land where they traditionally were. I, I guess I just I wish, you know, in in some ways that some of the insights that that you're discovering could you know encourage uh, places like that to to build up their rural communities to you know to value that the backbone of their economies as it is in some places or you know certainly the majority of their population i'm thinking of our next door neighbor here in australia our closest country which is papua new guinea you know the mm-hmm. the majority of the population there are subsistence farmers and it sometimes seems like their their contribution and their way of life is not particularly valued they're just seen as the bottom of the pile and you know they'll they'll get with the modernization program eventually hopefully yeah and and then where are all the jobs going to come from you know i look at for example and i I don't know current numbers but unemployment rates in cities like port-au-prince haiti Mm. and then which you know last i saw was something like 80 percent and 
you know, and then the one of the outcomes of the earthquake was was well, the, the infrastructure of Port-au-Prince was way overburdened by the population, mm. and one of the things that people kept talking about is decentralizing. And it's certainly a revitalization of, of the rural economy would would move things in a in that direction. Yeah, but yeah. but oftentimes subsistence farmers tend to just be overlooked. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, that certainly is really interesting. Now, look, obviously the the question is, all right, well, you know, you, you're in San Diego, you know, I, I'm in Australia. Most of our listeners are you know going to be in Australia or, or New Zealand. Uh, obviously, you'd love people to to donate to what you're doing. You know, plantwithpurpose.org. You know, check out what uh, Scott and his team are doing, and you know, and give generously. But are there other practical implications for us, you know, living in, in Western countries? Is this just a developing world issue or are there practical things that we can do in our own context? Well, I, yeah, and I think it's, it starts small. When, when we start talking about the global environment, yeah. you know, people, people use words like, like save the planet. Yeah. And, and it doesn't take very long before your eyes glaze over and you go, oh my gosh, you know, this is way beyond us. Yes, yes. And the answer is, yes, it is. I often think our situation is very similar to the, to the situation that the, if, if you remember the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, mm-hmm. 5,000 people, and that was just the men, so women and children, maybe 10,000 people or more, yeah. and the disciples come to, to Jesus with this impossible problem, you know, we've got to feed all these people, and Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Mm. And they step out on faith, you know, I mean, how are we going to give them something to eat, right? Yeah. They step out of faith, and they find this little boy who has five loaves and two fish. And I always think the absurdity of responding to this problem of 10,000 hungry people with five loaves and two fish. <laughs> yeah. And, and most of our responses to the global environmental problem are going to be in the league of, of five loaves and two fish. Mm. And yet it was that faith that became the raw material for the miracle. Mm. And mm. I think that that's where we have to start. Mm. You know, I've been blessed to be a part of this, and it is multiplied to a level that I never guessed it would have. It's still a tiny little thing in the face of, of uh, you know, global environmental issues. But uh, I'm going to conti- continue contributing my five loaves and two fish. And I think for any of us, you know, whether we're in Sydney or Auckland, or, there's you know, there's things that we can do. And probably things you are doing that put you way ahead of us here in the United States, but things that we can do yeah. to to contribute to again to be life giving in the way we live. Mm-hmm. I, I guess there are you know there are places in the West. I mean, I, I think of um, in some U.S. cities there are locations called you know food deserts. You know where basically people are dying of malnutrition basically because all they have is fast food you know fruit and mm-hmm. veg isn't in their area and this is often the case in, in a lot of poor communities and um, and we also have issues with land degradation and land clearing and, and all this sort of stuff I, I know that you know these are not just issues in in Latin America or, or Africa or, or you know the developing parts of Asia they are things that, that are happening right here and and I'm really glad that you're able to you know actually 
put these principles into place in the countries where you're working so the rest of us can learn from them and say, hey, you know, this could possibly even apply in Australia. You know, this could apply in, in the US or New Zealand or wherever. You know, one of the things that I learned way back 25 years ago is that oftentimes smallholder farmers are one of the biggest contributors to global deforestation mm-hmm. as they as they clear land to farm or as they make firewood or sell charcoal. And in our case, it's these people that we're working with who are the ones planting the trees. And they've planted over 31 million trees now. Wow. I was in Tanzania a couple of years ago, and our local director, and this was his initiative, put together an annual competition for the various savings groups to plant trees. Mm-hmm. And every year we have a celebration. And we had 10,000 people come to the celebration this year to celebrate the fact that collectively they'd planted uh, a million and a half trees this year. And from many of them, they see this as kind of a, a physical demonstration of their faith and mm-hmm. of the fact that they have purpose. And I think they've got a lot to teach us. Yeah, wow. Well, hey, thanks so much, Scott. I really appreciate the time you've you've spent with us today. And I guess the, the name of your organization, Plant With Purpose, you know, makes a, a whole lot more sense now. So, yeah, thanks, thanks so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Ken. It's been great talking with you. And if you'd like to know more about Plant With Purpose or even support them with your donation, please check out their website, plantwithpurpose.org. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. 